First Peter chapter 1, we're going to be looking, like I said, at verses 6 through 9, and this is what it says. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is that it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The letter is addressed in the opening verse to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, and uh, Cappadocia, and Asia, Jewish and Gentile refugees who have come into a right relationship with God through the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ have been scattered throughout the ancient empire around the Mediterranean rim, but most particularly, this group is being addressed to a group that's in ancient Anatolia or modern Turkey. Suffering, trial, persecution has erupted throughout the young church of Jesus Christ, and Peter will remind the Christians that there is triumph in trouble, there is maturity in suffering. And Peter begins by reminding the saints about some of the glorious facts surrounding our salvation. Peter writes about the source of our salvation in verses 1 and 2. And the security of our salvation in verses 3 through 5. And now Peter's pen will expand to the subject of the joy of our salvation in verses 6 through 9. The joy is found in the promise that even in the pressure-packed world of trial and suffering, we as Christians can experience real joy, joy in the Lord. Our trials and sufferings become, in part, the measure of growth in the life of the believer. Suffering carries with it unexpected benefits. They can increase our faith in God, in verse 7. They can increase our love for God, in verses 8 and 9. And so the presence of suffering doesn't mean the absence of joy or the absence of hope. And so Peter will remind the believers to live in hope in verses 3 through 12. And later in the chapter, the emphasis will move to an exhortation to live in holiness in verses 13 through 21, and then to live in harmony in verses 22 through 25. Now, one of the most asked questions I ever get is about suffering. On my radio program, you can almost count, almost without exception, that someone is going to ask about tongues. They're going to ask about tithing. They're going to ask about baptism. And if tongues, tithing, and baptism aren't brought up, suffering will be brought up. Why is there suffering? Why is there pain? Why is there soft sorrow? Peter Kreeft wrote, quote, Suffering is the evidence against God, the reason not to trust him. Jesus is the evidence for God, the reason to trust him. The well-known theologian Helmut Thielicke made the comment, quote, Tell me how much you know of the sufferings of your fellow men, and I will tell you how much you've loved them. Bill Veek, who was a Major League Baseball owner back in the day, captures the sentiment of both unbelievers and even some believers he said, suffering is overrated. But the fact remains that trials and tests and suffering are the universal experience of Christians. That's what it says in verse 6. So we must know the purpose for trials and tests, verse 7. And then we have to know how to conquer the trials and temptations. That's verses 8 and 9. You see, we as Christians live in a circumstance where almost without exception... There's going to be times in your life where you embrace sorrow. 
But what Peter is reminding us is that we can embrace sorrow and joy. Look what it says in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. The word translated trials is the Greek noun parasmos. And it's sometimes translated temptations. Remember, James wrote in James chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. The New Testament writers connect joy and trials. And this is going to be foreign to many, many people. Paul urges believers to focus on things above rather than things on the earth in Colossians 3, 2. And Peter's comment is to believers. And James' comment is to my brethren. And so when Peter and James say, count it all joy, or, or in this particular instance when he says, <laughs> in this you greatly re rejoice, you... He's still speaking to the pilgrims who are scattered all around Anatolia or the ancient lands of, uh, of, of the northern part that, that served as the bridge between Asia and Europe. So he's talking to Christians, unbelievers and make believers find no reason to rejoice in suffering. As a matter of fact, many unbelievers and make-believers are constantly wondering why they have to suffer. Why in the world would anyone consider it all joy? Why would anyone greatly rejoice when we encounter trials or are grieved under different circumstances? And in Peter's letter, we've been told that we have a living hope in verse 3. We have a permanent inheritance in verse 4. We have divine protection in verse 5. And so the rejoicing is on the basis of what Peter has already written about in verse 3, a living hope. In verse 4, a permanent inheritance. In verse 5, a divine protection. We have a chance to grow and mature and develop, according to verses 6 and 7, in our faith, the living hope, the permanent inheritance, the divine protection. That's what constitutes the foundation or the basis for greatly rejoicing. And this is a reference to deep spiritual joy. The Life Application Bible Commentary writes, quote, This type of rejoicing remains unhindered and unchanged by what happens in this present life, unquote. I like that. Greatly rejoice, listen carefully, is an expression of supreme happiness and of supreme joy. And this becomes something that is counterintuitive to almost anyone who has to deal with this subject. As a matter of fact, Peter doesn't begin with a philosophical premise. Most people do, even on my radio program. Why does an all-powerful God, why does a good God permit suffering? Many people begin with an, an even more personal premise. Why does an all-powerful God, why does a good God... Permit me to suffer. But Peter doesn't produce a primer on theodicy. And theodicy, by the way, is, this, is the whole study of pain and suffering. Yes, it is true. Some people have devoted their whole lives to this issue. But Peter points out that we as Christians adopt a new set of responses based on the confidence that God knows and God plans and God permits and God directs our lives for the good. It's to expand the kingdom. It's to grow us up. It's to change us. In verse 6, Peter wrote various trials, which means that they come in all shapes, sizes, and colors. As a matter of fact, the word translated various comes from a Greek term, poikilos, which means variegated or many colored. Yesterday I was 
<laughs> in all places with, with my wife, Hobby Lobby. She's going through, she's doing girl stuff in Hobby Lobby. And I notice, as I always notice when I'm in Hobby Lobby, I'm the only guy there. <laughs> so I'm trying to, you know, sort of look like I belong. And I pick up this crystal that is beautiful and I hold it up to the light and it begins to shed many colors. It's that same word. It, it means many colored. You know, you've heard the expression, love is a many splendored thing. Well, guess what? So are trials. Trials are a many splendored thing. The New Testament speaks of various, same word, diseases, various, same word, lust, various, same word, miracles, various, strange doctrines, same word. The other time Peter uses the expression is towards the end of this little letter in chapter 4, verse 10, but becomes important for us even right now because he says, as each one has received a gift... Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold, same word, grace. Many colored grace. The idea is he uses it to, to describe the reality that there's no trial, there's no test that God's grace can't match. Trials come in many sizes, shapes, and colors. May I be so bold as to suggest something to you? God's grace comes in many trials and colors, the presence and the intensity. Remember when Paul will write in the New Testament and he's going through his own peculiar sense of, of pain and problem and suffering and the Lord responds with, my grace is sufficient. You may not get this, but that's the point. Because Tests come in a lot of different forms, don't they? We suffer. Some of you are suffering right at this very moment. You are experiencing the test of sickness. You're experiencing the test of sorrow. Some of you are experiencing the, the test of depression, abuse, loss, disappointment, criticism, loneliness, emptiness. And it is a trial. But the reality is that God's grace is available for greed and for selfishness and for hoarding and for drunkenness and for deceit and for strife and for immorality and for drug use and for anger and for gluttony, which is not to be confused with gluten-free. <laughs> Envy, jealousy, uncleanness. Trials or tests grieve or, or create a weight or a burden. We all know what it's like to feel heavy or burdened, to experience the pressure or the mental anguish. In my many uh, journeys at uh, the Christian Used Books, I came across a, a little treasure by Dr. E. Stanley Jones, a daily devotional. And in one of the entries, Dr. Jones writes, quote, Grief comes to all, sours some, sweetens other. And this is what Dr. Jones writes. I shall use it to sweeten my spirit. Is that what you begin with a trial? With suffering? With sorrow? With disappointment? With pain? Chuck Swindoll writes, quote, This variety of trials is like different temperature settings on God's furnace. The settings are adjusted to burn off our dross temper us, soften us according to what meets our highest need. It is God's refining fires that the authenticity of our faith is revealed. The purpose of these fiery ordeals is that we come forth as purified gold, a shining likeness of the Lord Jesus himself. He, he, he has a note, see Romans 8, 28 and 29. That glinting likeness is what ultimately gives glory and praise and honor to the Lord. Jesus Christ. I like that. Peter will make several references to suffering throughout this letter. He'll talk about it here. He'll talk about it in chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. He'll talk about it in chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. He'll talk about it in chapter 5, verse 9. So as you can imagine, as we walk through Peter, 
this subject is going to come up over and over and over again. And rightly so. You want to know why? Because it comes up over and over and over in your life, doesn't it? Believers then, as well as now, experienced suffering. Even though there are religious constructs that will have you believe that it's not true. Most notably, the so-called health and wealth gospel, the so-called faith gospel, the so-called faith gospel that says if you have enough faith, you don't ever have to be sick. You don't have to ever experience sorrow. You don't have to ever experience pain. You don't have to ever experience deprivation. You don't have to ever experience loss. And you'll note something that in that wicked and weird construct, they always talk about faith, but they never talk about holiness. You want to know why? Because their false and flawed theology doesn't allow for suffering. And by the way, if you don't have a theology of suffering, eventually hurting people, lonely people, broken people aren't going to be welcome in your life and they're not going to be welcome in your church. And what's the source of suffering? Clearly, there are many sources of suffering. Natural disasters, God's punishment. But the immediate context in this particular chapter seems to be the response of unbelievers to faithful believers. The unbelieving world persecuting the people of faith. And in the context of this letter, Christians who refused to worship the emperor found themselves accused of treason. Christians... um, who refused to worship in pagan temples so that the economy was disrupted. Christians who refused to embrace the contemporary culture's values, both Roman and Greek, and that included the exaltation of self, the worship of foreign gods, the crass commitment to money and power. And so they were rejected by their family and friends. Does that sound at all familiar to you? You see, there is trial, there is test, there is temptation. They come in in many different forms. As you can imagine, there are those forms that come because you did exactly what was right. But we're kidding ourselves and we're lying to ourselves if we think even for a moment that we don't experience some pain and problems through our own wickedness and our own selfishness and our own poor decisions. But for... Peter and for the people who are suffering in this letter, there was an atmosphere of suffering. And Peter is going to go to great lengths to remind the Christian reader that no individual suffering escapes God's notice or escapes God's care or escapes God's control. And that should become a bedrock principle for you. God knows the truth. He knows the truth about what's going on inside of your heart and what's going on inside of your circumstances. He knows the truth about both the pain and the pleasure. The temptation to do what's wrong and the strength needed in order to do what's right. You see, God will use our experiences of suffering according to his infinitely wise plan and purpose. Grief and suffering are not without rhyme. They're not without reason. They're not without plan or purpose. Part of the challenge, though, is you don't always know the plan. You don't always know the rhyme. You don't always know the reason. We may not know the plan or the purpose, but we have to be willing to embrace what the Bible teaches and what Peter is telling us, that we're all subject to refining. We're all subject to molding and shaping. And as we're subject to the molding and the shaping and the refining, part of the point of that molding and shaping and refining is to prepare us to meet Jesus. And you might think, well, why can't I just sort of go as is? You know, we laugh, and I'm going to tell you something. Some of you will go as is. Because you won't allow the plan and the purpose, the refining and the molding and the shaping to do what it was always intended to do, to teach you patience, to help you grow in love, to help you grow in faith, for to help you grow in, in, in hope. Peter makes reference 
to the length of the suffering. He talks about yet for a little while. The idea is that the trial is temporary. It's transitory. It's for a season, which means that it will pass quickly. And I know what some of you are thinking, that your pain, your trial, your circumstance isn't passing as quickly as you want it to pass. You started calculating the the time that you've been married in terms of hours and minutes. (laughs) You're calculating the time that you've been unemployed. You're calculating the time and the circumstances and they seem to drag on and on and on. Paul calls them momentary, light. And you think, That's because he wasn't with me. But they are momentary and they are light when they're put in the proper perspective of eternity. Peter writes, if need be or if necessary. That is, they serve a purpose in the life of the believer. And I know what some of you are thinking. What purpose? What purpose? Could be any number of reasons. It could be to wean us away from worldly things. It could be to point us to heaven. Oddly enough, let me ask you a question. When you experience a trial, are you more likely to say, Why me? Or, Why not me? Why not me? Other people get cancer and it's a tragedy. Other people lose their husband or their wife and it's a tragedy. Other people lose their job and it's a tragedy. Someone defined recession as, as when your neighbor loses his job and a depression when you lose your job. But we say, why me? Instead of, why not me? Some people say, what did I do to deserve this? When you understand that God knows and when you understand that God plans and when you understand that God controls and directs your life for good, when you understand that God is giving you grace, sufficient grace, manifold grace, when you understand that God gives his love and his strength, when you understand that God is interested not just simply in you and not just simply in your future, but what you're going to look like in that future that you occupy, that that becomes a part of God's plan to prepare you for that future. And when you understand that God is trying to give you confidence, not in the trial, but in him, when you understand that God is trying to make you dependent upon him, when you understand that confidence that leads to perseverance, so that when you're consumed by anger, when you're consumed by grief, when you're consumed by sorrow, when you're consumed by pain, that you don't have to cave into the bitterness the improper judgment or the despair, confidence that leads to perseverance, that leads to courage. That's what the Lord is doing, knowing that your elder brother Jesus is your Savior and that you're joining his ranks, the fellowship of his suffering. He who suffered for us won't abandon us. He will sustain you. Remember what the psalmist said. He will never let the righteous fall. Did you know that what God is trying to get some of you to do is to get past the point of asking why me to a place of confidence and perseverance and courage because now you have been elected to put on confidence and perseverance and and courage but, but that isn't what most people want When I ask them what they want, almost invariably they'll tell me, I want the trial to be over. I want my husband to shape up. I want to get a job. I want this. I want that. I want my children to behave. Both Peter and James reply, Rejoice in the trials! We exclaim, No! (laughs) 
they say rejoice in the trials. And we balk, we pause, we say, give me a reason. Give me a reason. How many reasons do you need? Trials strengthen your faith? Paul writes, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, Romans 5.3. What does that mean? Trials strip the believer from self-reliance and promote reliance on the true and living God. And if you've ever prayed, Lord, I want to trust you, but I don't know how. Oh, well, here, I'm going to give you a methodology on how you can trust me. I'm going to take away everything that you trust in right now. Okay, what's the other option? Well, how many reasons do you need? The scriptures reveal that suffering will often produce the fruit of patience, Romans 5.3. And joy here, Psalm 30, verse 5. Maturity, 1 Peter 5.10. Righteousness, Hebrews 12.11. To put the devil to silence in Job 1.9. To teach us, Psalm 119.67. To purify our lives, Job 23.10. To make us like Jesus, Hebrews 12.9. To glorify God, Psalm 50, verse 15. To prevent us from sinning, 2 Corinthians 12.7. To make us confess our sin when we do sin, Judges 10.6. I need more reasons. Really? You need more reasons? Do you need 10 more reasons? Do you need 20 more reasons? Do you need 30 more reasons? How many reasons do you need before you will come to the conclusion... Somehow, God and his plan and his purposes is using sorrow and joy. Look what it says in verse 7. An increased faith in God. That's one of the reasons that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus. The genuineness is an interesting word. It's the neuter singular of an adjective, dokimios. It's only here, and it's also in James chapter 1, verse 3. The genuineness. The word was often used in the ancient world in conjunction with the process of smelting metal or assaying precious metals, most particularly gold or silver. And the assay process is designed to melt off the impurity and leave that which is precious and pure. And so when he says that the genuineness of your faith, the Peter is using the analogy to communicate the fact that God tests the believer's faith to reveal its integrity, to reveal its sincerity, to reveal if it is in fact genuine. Now, here's the big question, the big theological question. Is God doing this because he doesn't know the truth about your heart and he doesn't know the truth about your faith? What do you think the answer is? That can't be it. Because God knows everything. He knows every heart and he knows every circumstance. He knows every motive, true and false. He knows everyone and everything. And he knows the truth about you. Even if your husband doesn't know. Even if your wife doesn't know. Even if your children doesn't know. Even if your church or your pastor doesn't know. God knows the truth about what's going on inside of you. He doesn't do this for his benefit. He does this for your benefit. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 22 when the Lord speaks to Abraham and he says, take your son, your only son, to a place that I'm going to show you and there you're going to sacrifice him on the hill that I'm going to show you. This is the son of the promise. This is the son who's supposed to fulfill all of the plans and purposes of God and the promises of God concerning the mechanism. A covenant has been made that God is going to provide a Messiah, that he is going to enter into a real relationship with humanity, that he is going to reveal himself. And in part of that revelation, it's going to take place in the the person of this son. Do you think he asks Abraham to take Isaac to Mount Moriah Because he doesn't know the truth about his heart. Remember when Isaac asks Abraham, what are we doing? The Lord himself will provide a sacrifice. 
And you'll remember that Abraham takes his son, his only son, and he places him in a position where he lugs the burnt wood, the wood for the burnt offering up the side of the hill. And literally, as he's getting ready to plunge perhaps a flint, perhaps an obsidian knife into the heart of his son, the angel of the Lord stays his hand. He needs to know the truth about his own heart and about his own circumstances and about his own future. And so do you. The genuineness of your faith can even be translated, quote, the tested residue of your faith. Faith falls into two broad categories. Genuine and counterfeit. Faith can be tested. But faith can also remain untested. Genuine faith is valuable. Untested faith is not valuable. Peter contrasts genuine faith with something human beings have valued in other cultures and societies. Gold. I don't know if you knew this about gold, but gold is a, is a substance that can be beaten down so thin that an ounce of it can be put into a piece of thread wire that can stretch a mile long. Isn't that amazing? One of the things that makes gold so valuable is it seems to resist all of the corrosive elements in the world in which we live. And so it was meant to represent something valuable. By the way, gold, I understand, is trading now for about, what, $1,200 an ounce? Gold has been valuable in almost every culture, and every society. And so he uses gold as the metaphor and the illustration because it is durable and because it is valuable. It doesn't corrode. It doesn't melt. It doesn't rust. When it's heated, the dross and the impurities float to the surface. Often in nature, gold is found with silver and even the less valuable but still valuable metal floats and separates away from the gold. And so when Peter writes, though it is tested by fire, the implication being that the joy isn't conditioned by the presence or the absence of the test or the circumstances. The joy is there in spite of the trial, in spite of the hardship. In spite of the suffering, not because of the suffering. It's not saying you step on a nail and you go, oh, praise God, thank you, Jesus, I've just pierced my foot. <laughs> That's not what it's saying. Oh, bless God, everyone in my family is dead. <laughs> that, that isn't what it's saying. It isn't saying that there isn't an appropriate time to mourn and weep and enter into the reality that there are bad things and problematic issues. God is using the test to separate true faith from superficial or false profession. Hey, you know, I tried Jesus, but uh, I lost my job and my wife left me and my kids wound up in prison. What? Did you actually try Jesus because you thought it was Jesus that was going to make your marriage better? That it was going to make you wealthy and healthy and make your kids behave? Jesus came to the planet earth to die on the cross for your sins. To connect you with God and to give you an ever-present hope. God is using the test to separate true faith from superficial profession. What is it going to take? What is it going to take for you to walk away from God? And you know, that's what the devil will often whisper in your ear. You read the book of Job and you just, you just beg God that that doesn't happen to you. Peter's passage provides us with a wealth of information about trial and suffering. And clearly what he is saying is that the test is necessary. Proving the genuineness of our faith in the Lord Jesus and teaching us humility and honesty and transparency and, de and dependence. Trials are distressing, teaching us compassion so that we'll never make fun of another person's test or cruelly force them to put on a happy face in the midst of the test. 
That's not what the passage is saying. The passage isn't saying you're in a trial, you're suffering, you've lost your job, you've lost this, you've lost that. There is pain, there is problem, but put on a happy face. That's not what it's saying at all. It's not saying put on a happy face. It is saying allow the profound presence of the joy of the Lord to be the governor and the foundation that gives you the ability to think carefully about the circumstance that you find yourself in as you embrace perseverance, as you embrace courage. Look what it says, at the revelation, the apocalypse, or the appearing, and this is almost certainly a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. At the end of verse 13, the exact Greek phrase is translated in the King James Version, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, what's the point that Peter is making? That Jesus will return? Yes, Jesus will return. But the point isn't a historical or theological reference to the reality that Jesus is coming back, although he is in fact coming back. But the context is incredible. And the context incredibly says that Jesus will have something to say to you. At his return. That the trial and the pain and the suffering is meant to elicit something from Jesus. That's the point. Do you remember the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 verses 21 through 23 where a group of stewards are given and entrusted with a particular stewardship and the, and the master comes home and some are rewarded. One is given one, another is given a couple more and some are even given more. One person takes it and buries his talent, another one doubles, another one triples and when Jesus comes back and he begins the evaluation of the stewardship for the person who was faithful for the person who could be trusted, for the person who took the talent and used it to expand the resource that was given to him, the the master winds up saying, I put you in charge of a lot of things. Enter into the joy of your master. That's the point. Peter uses the term glory and praise and honor but it's in the sense of that which the believer receives from the Lord. You know, we're used to giving Jesus the glory. We're used to giving Jesus the praise and giving Jesus the honor. But in this particular instance, the idea is that the trial, the pain, the suffering, the deprivation, the setback, as you trust him, reveals something about yourself that you really are dependent upon him. Both Peter and Paul taught that the believer will stand before Jesus and give an account of his or her life. That that means the things done in the flesh. And so he talks about this increased love for God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You don't see Jesus, but you love him. The trial, the suffering has the added benefit of increasing your love for God. Have you ever prayed, even accidentally? Lord, I want to love you more. Okay. You've all heard the expression... Be careful not to pray for patience. What happens when you pray for patience? It's an invitation to trial. When you pray for love, it's an invitation to trial. Our Savior stands in the furnace with us. Do you remember the story in the book of Daniel about the group of Hebrew Children who refuse to bow to the king's idol and they're forced to stand in a literal fiery furnace. And when they're tossed in, King Nebuchadnezzar sees a fourth man in the fire. And the only thing that burns away is the source of their 
captivity. They're bound by ropes. The ropes burn away, but then they see something that they weren't able to see before. You may not be able to see Jesus in your trial. The only thing that you might be able to see is the flames around you. But make no mistake, he's there. F.B. Meyer in his little pamphlet called Tried by Fire writes, quote, No man is a Christian who does not love the Lord Jesus. This is the touchstone of trial for each one of us. Not what we profess or say, but whether we love and how much. But let us remember that love reveals itself differently according to that aspect of Christ's person or work in which the Spirit has fixed the beholder's eye. In some conscious of a great deliverance, it takes the form of gratitude. In others, smitten with the beauty of his character of complacency. In others, preoccupied with his claims of reverential devotion to his service. The symptoms of its presence are manifold, sometimes adoring silence at others irrepressible tears or the sudden burning of the cheek or unostentatious acts of mercy. And ostentatious isn't a word that we use anymore, but it means flattering or self-serving acts of mercy. He writes, or steadfastness in confessing him at all costs. Love betrays itself whether it fetches water from the well of Bethlehem as a peril of life or comes with the precious spikenard to anoint the dear body of the dead. F.B. Meyer uses the illustration of, of David who, who longs for a drink of water from the hometown. He uses the illustration of the son of David whose body in preparation for death is being anointed with a, a precious uh, salve F.B. Meyer's words are rich. He says one more sentence that I have to include. Those that love Christ most often accuse themselves of not loving him at all. The reason why that's such an important sentence, those that love him most will often put themselves in a position where they don't feel like they love him at all. And so what they do, what they do, what they wind up doing, the reason he gives is that they love him so much that they come to the conclusion that he's deserving of a love so much greater than that they have to offer. And so they love him so much that they make room for anyone, anyone who would love him better. And yet they stand aside and so much agony. So they look at a person and they say, it looks to me like you love them more. I'm just going to get out of your way. It looks to me like you love them more. But here's the point. The Lord who knows all things knows how much they love. And after all, love isn't always measured by feelings. It isn't measured by size. It isn't measured by tears, but it's measured in the things that you really, really do. F.B. Meyer basically winds up saying that in direct proportion to what you're prepared to suffer, what you're prepared to give up for him because becomes the truth. Not just about your faith, but about your love. And so in verse 9 it says, receiving the end of your faith, faith, the salvation of your souls. What does Peter mean? The word salvation literally means deliverance. Receiving the end of your faith, the deliverance. The salvation isn't simply a future hope, but a present reality. Receiving the end of your faith, literally obtaining or presently receiving for yourself. The root word receiving means to receive something that belongs to you. Here's the idea. Remember, Jesus has shown up. But because you love him, really love him, then that which you have always imagined is, that has been yours is yours. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. The issue here isn't a deserved salvation. 
but rather a connection to Jesus, a relationship with Jesus, a fellowship with, with Jesus that, that is the outcome of your salvation. And so here salvation speaks of the believer's constant, present deliverance from the penalty of sin and the power of sin and from the guilt of sin and from the condemnation of sin and from its ignorance and dominion. So we have no reason to lose our joy. That's the point. When we tap into the present and future realities found in Jesus, we have a proven faith. We have fellowship with Jesus. We have a protected future inheritance. We have promised honor. But so many Christians, that's not the life that they want in Christ. Not a life of love and faith. They want freedom from pain and sorrow. A doctor friend of mine sent me this note. He said, quote, I recently picked a new primary care doctor. After two visits and exhaustive lab tests, he said I was doing fairly well for my age. He's, we are the same age. He said, I just turned 55. A little concerned about the comment, I couldn't resist asking him, do you think I'll live to be 90? Do you smoke tobacco or drink beer or wine? Oh no, I replied, I'm not doing drugs either. Then he asked, do you eat ribeye steaks and barbecued ribs? Not really. My former doctor said all that red meat is unhealthy. Do you spend a lot of time in the sun playing golf, sailing, hiking, bicycling? No, I said. He said, do you gamble, drive fast cars, and have a lot of sex? No, I said. He looked at me and said, then why in the world do you care? I understand. Contrast that with a different letter. This letter from George Whitfield. George Whitfield, responsible for the Great American Awakening, and, and he writes it to John Newton, who wrote the very famous song, Amazing Grace. George Whitfield writes to John Newton, Gladly shall I come whenever bodily strength will allow me to join my testimony with yours in only pulpit. That's the church where he preached that God is love as yet I have not recovered from the fatigues of my American expedition my shattered bark is scarce with docking anymore he's talking about his earthly body but I would fain wear not rust out oh my dear Mr. Newton indeed and indeed I am ashamed that I have done and suffered so little for him who has done and suffered so much ill and hell deserving me. This is George Whitfield, arguably the greatest preacher of his generation. He's suffering. His response I can't believe that I haven't done anything really for Jesus. Only those who have experienced salvation can know the joy of salvation. And the experience of salvation is the explanation of joy. We experience sorrow, tests, trials, temptations, not solicitations to evil. Trials are on the outside. Joy is on the inside. Peter has spoken of the characteristics of joy, unspeakable, inexpressible, full of glory. That means already marked off with the splendor of heaven. It, when he says that, he goes joy unspeakable. When he's using that expression, here's what he's basically seven, saying it's heaven anticipated right now. When I'm thinking about heaven right now, I can hardly keep my mouth from exclaiming sounds of joy and praise. The channels of joy are faith and love. And the channel provides the rivers of grace that will be necessary to stand in the presence of the trial. And all of a sudden, just for a very, just for a brief, happy moment, we understand about sorrow. And we understand about joy. 
and we understand that the presence of sorrow isn't the absence of joy. But there's a whole lot more to talk about, and it'll have to wait for next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, letters change. Attitudes change. Lord, we experience a trial. We experience a setback. We experience a sorrow. And we don't want it. We want it to go away. Lord, we say that we want to be more like Jesus. We say that we want to be molded and shaped in our character. We say that we want our faith to increase. And we say that we want our love to increase. And being the dutiful Lord that you are, you give us an opportunity to to do exactly that. And Lord, sometimes we do better than other times. Sometimes we embrace the sorrow in the knowledge that it's going to accomplish exactly what you purposed that it would accomplish. Humility, honesty, transparency, dependence, commitment, And so, Heavenly Father, again, we thank you. We praise you. I know that some of us want to be able to rejoice in the trial. But we don't know exactly how to do that. But, Lord, I pray that you will reveal that it begins with a willingness to truly, really, literally, Believe that it's your desire that we become more like Jesus. And so again, Father, we, I pray for that person who's under the most horrendous of pressures. Lord, we know that sometimes we divide the sorrow so that we can share the joy. Sometimes we have no idea what to do with the pain and we have no idea what to do with the trial, and we have no idea what to do with the sorrow. But Lord, again, we pray that you would create in our hearts a mechanism of perseverance, a mechanism of courage, and a willingness to appropriate the grace necessary to stand the trial. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.